1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. First Timothy 4 this morning, please. We're talking about the apostolic or biblical or Christian philosophy of ministry. All those are synonymous terms. Christian means of Christ. Apostolic means those that are sent by Christ. And biblical is the word we have from the apostles of Christ and the prophets of the Old Testament testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're talking about the practice of what I, what I call it, but practice or the, the Pauline philosophy of ministry today. Paul's philosophy of ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And then the next paragraph, 11 through 16, takes you through the commands where Timothy is commanded by Paul to practice this philosophy of ministry. What a great Sunday to visit because this, this is the summary of what sets our church apart, in my opinion. We take this very seriously and don't know what to do with ourselves if we don't take this very seriously. I suppose we could have all kinds of other interesting, fun things that wouldn't be this idea. You just heard some really wonderful music for some really talented and, uh, and gifted musicians. Playing something that we've been singing in the body of Christ since 1840, which means it's a really new song in church history. For 2,000 years, we've been praising Jesus Christ in song, praising God the Father and the power of the Spirit and the name of the Son in song. But that song came about in about 1840. It's famous for several things. It kind of is the song that goes with the era just before the 20 years before the Civil War. But it had been played for a long time after that. Uh, it was on the Titanic. That's the famous thing that the band played, Nearer My God to Thee, as the, the ship sank, as one of the eyewitnesses tells us. What about being nearer to God? Well, that's what our philosophy of ministry drives us to. Listen to the Apostle Paul pointing out these things, the need to be in the word and rejecting false teaching and pointing out these things to the brethren. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished. And that means because you're constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine, which you've been following. So you're not there. You're growing in the word. It's a constant expectation that there will always be more to grow, more growing to do. It's a present uh, participle. You're constantly, that's why they translate constantly nourished. I would say trained. And the goal is uh, the greatest thing. Last hour, we basically spent the whole time talking about this highest desire we have in life. What is that greatest desire? What's your highest ambition that God has told you should be your greatest ambition in life? You know what it is? to be pleasing to him. And you could say to know him because that's what he wants. To be pleasing to him. And Paul says this way, to be a servant. Now Jesus, Jesus said um, that we're his servants. So he told the disciples this in the upper room discourse in John 14 through 17. As you all know, that's the upper room discourse, John chapters 13 through 17. In chapter 14, he tells them so much of how to serve him will be to obey him and to love him is to show your love in obedience. And he's talking to believers when he says it. And this is, this is the attitude that we come to the word of God with, to, to know God and to be pleasing to him. Now, there's a consideration people have said about this idea of pleasing God that is the opposite of what we're saying. The challenge is this, that if you really understood the grace of God, 
then you wouldn't talk about wanting to be pleasing to God all the time. You would just know that you are pleasing to him because you have Christ. And more importantly, Christ has you and you're settled in your position in Christ. And that's a Pauline doctrine. Paul especially, Paul especially elaborates on Jesus teaching in John 15 about abiding in Christ when he talks about the, the, the position that we have. But our position in Christ carries expectations, responsibilities, and capabilities. And that's what the New Testament is written for. So that knowing I'm stable in my position in Christ, that I have a relationship with God because of what Jesus did, that was the beginning of my relationship was when I first trusted in Christ and I was born again. I was given this new life in Christ. And so all the things that God did when I first believed, that's the starting point. It's called the new birth. And we have to then grow up. That's the starting point of all that Paul says in terms of the expectations of ministry. Today, as we read through 1 Timothy 4 and our little survey of 1 Timothy, you're going to see many commands that the apostle issues, many commands that he tells Timothy he's responsible for. And I'm not guessing on whether these are commands. This isn't just my little pet idea that the, the, well, these are commands from Paul. There's a, there's a way of saying it in Greek that it's really clear. It's an imperative. It's a command. Like the way the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write the letters that he wrote and the words that are composed of those letters tells us that he's issuing directives. And so here's what happens when somebody in charge tells you a command. You now have a responsibility that you may not have been aware of before. Oh, that's what we're doing. And it's so helpful. It's the grace of God every day that he loves you enough as his beloved children to tell you what you ought to be about. And that's what we get in this passage of philosophy of ministry. Let's review what we did a little bit. First hour in verse six, Paul says, by laying these things down, literally for the brethren, by teaching them all that I'm sharing with you, especially in Ephesus, especially against the false teaching that's, that's saturating Ephesus. By laying these things down for the brethren, you will be a good deacon, a good diakonos, a good servant. Not the office of deacon, like he talked about in chapter three, the servant, that he, just the word for servant. You'll be a good servant of whom? Of Jesus Christ, because you are being trained. My word in my New American Standard says nourished. I'm not sure what yours says. It might say uh, nourished or something, but this is a word that has an idiomatic sense in the first century, and it doesn't mean just to eat food and grow by eating. It means to be reared, which involves eating as a baby involves nursing, but it's many more. It's much more than that to grow to maturity. It's not just food. It's also all the training, all the discipline, all the instruction, all the knowledge that you need. And so the better word for entrefo here would be to, to be, you're being trained and it's in the present tense. This is an ongoing thing that he's doing. It's not up there. Well, that's no good. If I could turn back time. It's not working. Now it's working. That moment when your, your batteries ran out on your keyboard upstairs on the pulpit. We have power in the spirit, but my keyboard doesn't have power. Okay. By laying these things down for the brethren is the literal Greek. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ because you're being trained. The present tense. See, we can pick up where we were because we're just in the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible with you. You're being trained as a present participle. And you're like, I don't care. 
<laughs> a present participle is a way of saying something's ongoing generally, the way it's being portrayed. And this is really important because it doesn't mean that you're there. It means you're in a constant state of advancing to getting there. That's the way Paul portrays it in Philippians chapter three, as you recall. I don't consider myself to attained, but I keep advancing to that which I already have attained. And there's a maturity that means you're ready to serve. There's a maturity that means I'll never quite get there in terms of absolute perfection or complete completeness in terms of putting on the character of Christ. But that's what we're going for is the character of Jesus Christ. You're being trained is what he says. And then he says in the word, in the logos. And then he describes the word in a very interesting way that if I read through my English, as we saw last hour, I just kind of gloss over it. But if I look at it in some detail, it's, uh, it's actually a really beautiful description. Two things that he says about the word. The first is, it is of the faith. It is the body of revelation that is to be believed. And today we call it the Bible. And Paul is writing part of it here to Timothy. A lot of times when Paul talks about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the 39 books of the Tanakh or the Old Testament scriptures. The way we count 39. And the word of the faith. Okay, this is the word of God. And then he says... It is also the word of the good teaching, good, good doctrine, didascalia. Now, this is clunky in English because we don't do our modifiers this way, but this is the interlinear of what Paul's doing in the Greek. He describes the word twice. He says it's of the faith, that body of truth that is to be believed, and therefore the foundational worldview that we operate from. The more I'm biblical, the more I'm thinking like God thinks about whatever the topic is, right? But it's also the word of the good teaching. There's doctrine that Timothy has received from Paul. And this puts a little bit of a different uh, nuance on this idea of the word. It's the body of truth, but it's also that which you've been taught. And we talked about last hour, how Timothy followed Paul a, a lot, thousands of miles and th thousands of days in ministry in a really interesting one-on-one uh, -on -one kind of seminary situation when Paul picked him up in a second missionary journey. So you've been trained, you're being trained in the word of the faith and of the good teaching. And then he says, which you have perfect tense, which you followed. You have a demonstrated track record. Notice the time frames in, in the, the nuance of what Paul's saying. He says, you will be future tense. Let me get my laser beam. You will be a good servant. This is a future indicative, which means it's going to happen in the future. I looked it up. The future tense in Greek means future. All right. <laughs> now, some scholars will argue that point, but most won't. Most are aware that the Greeks do know about time frame and future tense basically almost always, if not always, is talking about the future. You will be a good servant having laid these things down by laying these things down for the brethren. So Timothy, you got to teach the people. You got to teach them the word. Now, I talk about the Christian life of Paul. Paul is a Christian. He is coming from Jesus Christ. He was trained personally by Jesus Christ. We are worshiping our Savior in our lives if we will walk with Paul lockstep. That's the idea. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about any other man. And, and I, don't, I don't really believe, I don't I really believe, let, let me not qualify. I absolutely see no contradiction between a correctly understood thing Matthew says and a correctly understood thing Paul says, and they're talking about different things when you think they're talking about the same thing sometimes. And so I think, for example, let me blow your mind. If you haven't thought about this, I think Matthew's written to Christians. 
I think the call to high expectations and discipleship is for believers in Christ. And to tell a non-believer who doesn't have the spirit of Christ to, to do all that Jesus tells the disciples to do. Well, that's not, that's not what John says. That's not what Paul says. Dead in trespasses and sins. You're not doing these things that Jesus commands. Oh, but you become a Christian by giving up everything. No, you become a Christian by trusting in Christ. And then you need to figure out that he's bought you with a price and it's his blood. And you need to grow into that truth and live it. And so I believe that the, basically, let me summarize and, and you can maybe find some, some places where, where you, you might think there's a little bit of a difference. But I think basically the New Testament's written to Christians. And I think those Christians are recipients of the New Testament because believers went and told the Gentile world after the pattern of Paul, they went and told other people about Jesus that he died for their sins and rose from the dead. And they proclaimed the doctrine of the resurrection and the death of Christ and his suffering for them and the gospel that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. And they, they, this was the summary message. And so many of the hymns that Paul quotes that they're singing in that day summarize this message. The people were telling the gospel and then the apostles were saying, now here's what you do as a believer in Jesus Christ. I think that's the purpose of Matthew. And that's why the conclusion of Matthew is get to work. Yeah, there's, there is the worldwide project that Paul is the ultimate fulfillment in terms of, of, of equipping as the apostle to the Gentiles, us to go to all the nations. So I, I think the Bible, in other words, I think the new Testament is really tight and I think it's all from Jesus Christ. And we need to look at it in, as a composite word of, of Christ where we're serving him and see, that's the summary Paul gives Timothy. You're going to be a good servant of Christ. That's what we want. That's what we want. And, and so the faith is that body of truth that's been delivered. And the good teaching is what Paul has been working on with Timothy. And the analogy for us now is that we're reading Paul we're reading what Paul gave Timothy. And so Timothy, you have a track record of following it. Now the, the, the perfect, the present, the future tense, you will be a good servant. You are being trained right now as we speak, as you go through this life and you have followed this teaching. You have a demonstrated track record. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Now, not everybody in the room may be like that. You know, where you are with God, you are where you are. This is where Timothy is, as he's getting ready to go pastor a church and function really as an apostolic emissary, which has a little bit more juice, a little more horsepower than just a pastor. Now, when we get to verse seven, what to do with other doctrines is given in contrast. Again, when I read through the passage that we're looking at in first Timothy chapter four, verses six through 10, when I look through this passage, when I read through this one jumps out at me, the wives tales, the old wives tales passage. But when I read through it slowly and I look at the contrast between verse six and seven, he's saying there's a body of truth that you hold to and everything else you let go of application in our time. Where are you being lied to? Where are people saying things that they can't know that they're certain of? And everybody just knows that it's that way. I'd say that's what we're talking about today. And so let's read it. In the New American Standard, it says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I don't know what the New American Standard 2020 says there, but there's a better way to translate that that isn't as... Uh, uh, ungentlemanly. Let me say it that way. Paul doesn't say fit for old women. 
He doesn't say those words. He says one word and it's an adjective. And so I found a one word adjective. It's actually a hyphenated word adjective. So let's try it. But the pointless and elderly womanish myths reject is what he says. Elderly womanish. Let's say it that way because that's what it means. It's an adjective that there was a noun. I don't know of a noun, a single noun in English for this that isn't really pejorative. I know this, that um, let me just, let me lighten the mood a little bit with the elderly woman uh, adjective. Um, <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories of, of ministry in Ukraine. I've been able to go over to Jim Meyer's work in Ukraine a couple of times and teach in the Bible college. And uh, one of the students there was an American uh, pastor's kid, really good friend uh, named Bob. And everyone in, and he was there for two years. He learned Russian fluently. He could preach in Russian, a really smart kid anyway. But see, cause when you're there, the Americans come and speak in English and then the translator translates it in Russian and you hear it twice. And so you may not know a lot of Russian, but you know, theological Russian after two years. And, um, <laughs> everyone is calling him Bob, Bob. And I would always kind of chuckle about this. That, hey, hey, Bob. <laughs> and, uh, what's even more funny is, I guess the funnier is the adjective. What's even better is when, um, I explained to the Russian speakers, the Ukrainians and, and other, other people from all, all the Russian world, um, came and, uh, and I told them that his name isn't Bob. Why are y'all calling him Bob? B-O-B, Bob. And I was like, no, it's Bob. They all fell out of their chair. They thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard in their lives. Bob, Bob, Bob. Have you ever heard the word babushka? You ever heard that? that we don't know any Russian, but we know about babushka. That means grandmother. That's grandma because if you put ka in a Russian word, it becomes the little ka, the little sweet thing. So uh, voda is, is water and vodka is the sweet little water. That's what it means. If vodka. It's Sunday morning. There we go. You put a ka on it, it becomes the sweet little thing. There was a little boy named Mark and they called him Marchika, Marchiska, something like that. Where little Marky. Babushka is the sweet little elderly lady, grandma. But Bob means uh, uh, old hag. <laughs> and I don't mind saying that since we don't have any of those. But, but it, 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 means, it means, you know, um, uh, old woman as the butt of the joke or something. And the, um, they thought that was just hilarious because of the American smart kid. And uh, it was great. And uh, he took it on the, he took it just fine. <laughs> I said, okay, everybody call him Bob. <laughs> it's Bob. It's not Bob. Anyway. Um, so this is an interesting thing. Um, women are uh, going to age. It's not a popular topic. Men are going to age. Let's quit talking about this. We're all going to die. That's how it goes. I try to save these. We're all going to die messages for Easter or Christmas. You know, just to be really appropriate. You know what the Bible says about age? It's supposed to come with maturity, wisdom, and honor. But sometimes people aren't honorable in their age. Sometimes they're busybodies, and that's what he's talking about here. There's a thing where idle hands get into silliness. And so women that are uninformed, but like to share a story, build whole rumors out of 
things that they don't know. And that's what this is a cultural, this is what this means, elderly womanish myths. We call it old wives tales. And you're like, well, that's just silly. I mean, they're believing old wives tales. They're believing things that aren't true about the metaphysical world. And they, they're in a pagan context where people are like, hey, I had an idea and uh, this is the revelation for you. It's partly mysticism. It's all demonic deception. And remember our context, the doctrines of demons, asceticism in this context. He said that forbidding of marriage, forbidding of eating certain foods that God said are fit for, for you to eat because he blessed you and you receive them with thanksgiving. Okay, so the, the, the context is you're being deceived. And Paul talks about the deceptions in a very uh, pejorative way. Older, elderly womanish myths. You are to reject them. Now, why did I put the reject in red? Y'all know why I put it in red? Because I like the contrast between red and blue. But why, why did I make this one emphatic? Because it's a command. Because my, my free grace brethren who say, well, if you talk about obedience, then you're violating grace somehow. Uh-uh. No, because of the grace of God and the power of the spirit in us, we can obey the commands of, the God, of God in the New Testament. And, and not only can we, we're supposed to, and God forbid that we miss the opportunity to benefit from God's grace and the power of his spirit obeying what he's commanded. That's the great commission to teach them to keep all that I've commanded. It's amazing to me that we'll sidestep this and say, well, we're going to study the word. We're going to learn about Paul, but we're not going to keep all that Jesus commanded, which is what Paul is doing. He's discipling the nations. He's discipling us by saying this. Pointless and elderly womanish myths. When I read a passage about elderly women in a bad light, I want to go ahead and flip over to Titus chapter two real quick and tell you that the church doesn't work unless the elderly women do their job. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it real quick. In Titus chapter two at verse three through five, one of my favorite passages about philosophy of ministry in the local church. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not devils, that's malicious gossip, diaboloi, devils, nor enslaved to much wine, but teachers of the good, literally, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, sound-minded, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You, ladies, have a role in the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you interact with younger women. What an amazing burden. What an amazing uh, responsibility Paul lays on the elderly women and the church family. We know it's a family from 1 Timothy 3 or the household of the living God. So this is womanhood gone wrong when he says it this way. And there is a woman problem in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. On the other hand, by contrast, so he just contrasted the sound teaching of God's word as the philosophy of ministry in verse six with the, with the, the false doctrines that are being spun around and, and passed off as authoritative. Have you ever heard a charismatic speaker that told you this is how it is and you didn't really like evaluate where they're coming from? They just said it. And you're like, hmm, that sounds good. Yeah, every presidential uh, uh, campaign whether primaries or every time there's a speech, somebody said they just rhetoric, they just say things and it's the way they present them. And if there's great rhetorical skill and enough of like authenticity from the person, then you feel like, man, that must be true. And it's just marketing. And the world is full of deception and deceived people. Satan has deceived the nations. 
And so this is the anecdote, the antidote. <laughs> I have lots of anecdotes, but this is the antidote. On the other hand, he says, train yourself. Whoa. Gumnadzo, where we get the word, uh, it's a verb from the word where we get gym, gymnasium, the place of the training for the games, the place of the training, the physical, you know, uh, trials you put yourself through to be competitive in the, in the Olympic games. Train yourself for good worship. I'll translate it paraphrastically for the desired result of good worship. Now your Bible says godliness, major theme in first Timothy, really through the new Testament godliness. And I think that word is not understood. So I like to explain what I think it means. It is by context, the consequence of having followed the teaching of the apostles and being saturated with that mind of Christ the thinking of God and his word so that you do what it says. It is the consequence of a life saturated with the word of God in its intake and its application. Godliness. It is the Christian spiritual life. It is that which has been uh, bequeathed to you as your, your inheritance in the Ephesians 1.14, giving of the Holy Spirit as the earnest. It is the spirit of God living in you, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, to fill you, be filled, a passive imperative command, always go on being filled by the spirit so that you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all the effects of the filling of the spirit contrasted or compared with Colossians three, which says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you and the same results of how you speak to one another and how you speak to God. The filling of the spirit is with the word of Christ and that work of God in our hearts with his word. And I'm talking about what God says through Paul, through Ezekiel, through, through the word, through the prophets and the, and, of the Old Testament and the prophets and apostles of the New Testament, through that cognitive process empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, you are being saturated with the thinking of God. That is your design. You are made at the factory in your new birth for that work. And that's an awesome thing. And it's supposed to be happening right now, but it's supposed to be happening all the time. And I know that there's a difference between taking it in. Well, I like to study the word. I really want to get into the details of things. There's a big difference between taking it in and living it out. We get in detail in, in our study and then you go out and you're like, I don't remember those details. You remember the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and, a, and, and the other two things. Clear conscience, sincere faith. You, you know that you're supposed to love one another in the power God gives you because the fruit of the spirit is love. You know, you're supposed to abide in Christ and him and you, and you'll bear much fruit. And that fruit of the spirit is the fruit he's talking about. You know that you have a spiritual life that's empowered by God, the Holy spirit using the word he inspired in the, in the, in the writers of the scriptures. And this is what we're doing. We're training ourselves with the desired result of good worship of godliness. Now, what is godliness? You Sabaya. In a way, it's kind of a technical term in the New Testament. It's kind of like a, just a word that's just thrown out there. And it has a context in uh, first century usage that, that we, we have hints at because they just throw it. They just use it as a noun. They just say you sabaya. Again, context here tells me it's the consequence of what Paul is telling Timothy in verse six. That you're focused and you're saturated with this word so that you're characterized by the thinking of God. And then you're not just taking it in, but you're living it out. That's good worship. Eusebiah, E-U, E-U, prefix means good, pretty, attractive. 
Sabaya, to worship, to bow, to, to give deference to. That's the etymology of it, good worship. That's how the word comes together. How we got from that godliness, this, I, I've always hated the way that word sounds. I've been a Christian since before I ever heard the word godliness, and I've never liked that word. In English, understand in English. Here's why. Because you have prissy Christians with their nose in the air thinking that they're like God. What I think is what God thinks. And it's just Phariseeism. And people think that's what godliness is, and certainly the outsiders think that. Because the godly have given them that impression. The prissy Christian. Some of you struggle with that, I know. I don't know who you are. We try to tone that down in this church. Hey, the other side is just as bad or worse. They, they, well, at least I'm not, not prissy like that guy. At least I'm, I, I sin out loud. We get self-righteous about how we're not self-righteous. It's just... But this word godly, Eusebiah, it's the Christian spiritual life. It's probably better Godwardness, but it's awkward sounding. So we're stuck with unfortunate English words. It's like the word repentance. You know where the word repentance came from? It doesn't sound anything like the Greek word Paul uses or, or the, the, the New Testament writers use. Meta, metanoeo, metanoia. Doesn't sound anything like repentance. But penance and repentance and penitentiary all sound alike because they're all the same word. And the Latin, see, Jerome, in his Latin King James, the Latin Vulgate, he said, you know, for metanoeo, he said the word for penitence. And so it became into English repentance. And so now we're thinking like there's some, something we have to do to get forgiveness besides trusting in Christ and that change of mind that is metanoeo. It, it's, there's some his, historical baggage with our words, but we're stuck with repentance. I'll teach it. I'll use the word repentance. As long as you understand, it means a change of mind. And you don't save yourself from your sin. You don't save yourself by turning from sin. Jesus Christ is your savior from your sins because he paid for them on the cross. And this word godly doesn't mean I'm a little priss acting like I think I'm like God. It means that I'm devoting myself to him. I'm worshiping him with my life. Back to philosophy of ministry. In, some, in most evangelical churches today, I think the, the tendency is probably to say uh, brother so-and-so or more often sometimes sister so-and-so is going to get up and pray for the whole church. And then we're going to have um, worship time. And then the pastor might, we might give him 20 minutes with the word. Bless your hearts. Y'all listen to me for two hours every Sunday. And I don't mean the Texas bless your hearts. I mean, it's awesome. The philosophy of ministry that you have adopted here. But here's the thing. In the popular approach, worship is the singing. I think it'd be better never to sing if that's what you think worship is. If you think worship is just singing God's praises, then you need to get back in the Bible. And you're like, well, we have the whole book of Psalms and how Israel worshiped God. Have you ever worked a Psalm? Y'all have with me. Like the poetry, to the, the, the complexity, the beauty of, of what's going on in the artistic presentation of some really awesome systematic theology in the Psalms. Yeah, it's a, it's a praise song. They did sing it. We don't have the music. We don't know what the notes are. There's some interesting weirdo wives tale sort of theories about how to get the, the, the notes out of the cantillation marks. Uh, <laughs> I think we'll hear David sing Psalm 23. I think it's one of the blessings God has laid up for us in the, in the eternal state. I think we're, we're headed that way. Don't worry. You'll spend a lot more of your time or your experience in, in life knowing what the Psalms sound like than as we do now, not knowing what they sound like because eternity is a long time. Know what I mean? 
But worship is life. Yes, we sing. Yes, yes, Eusebiah, let's do it. Ephesians 5, real quick with me, please. If you turn there. I think this is the best picture of good worship, of a life of worship. And it's always empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. Oh, I just want to walk around and whoop this up, preach it. Do not be drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but instead, but rather, but in contrast, be filled by the spirit. I think it's the instrumentation of the spirit using the, the material, the medium of the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16. How does the spirit fill me? Well, it is a personal work, but it's with an objective content. It is the word of Christ. It is his thinking. Otherwise, what is it? Well, it's, um, I have mystical leanings. I just feel like, you know, I'm kind of being led over this way. You're right, my left, but for you, for your, to the right. I'm being, I just feel like I'm kind of being led. Well, that's not what Ephesians 5 is talking about. Listen to the consequence of being filled by the Spirit uh, before we get to it. Ephesians 5.15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. That means you have skill at doing something, and it is not mysticism. Because you're making the most of your time, because the days are evil, so do not be foolish, but understand what the will is of the Lord is. That does not mean beloved that we are some sort of Christian magic eight ball, like shaking ourselves up till we can figure out what the answer is. Cause it just occurs to us. That's not how it works. That's not what Paul's talking about through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is more doctrinally dense perhaps than any of Paul's other letters. It's got so much cognitive content. And when he says you need to understand what God wants, that, that beloved is the new Testament. Do you know what God wants? Ephesians or first Timothy four, six, he wants you to be a servant of Christ. Matthew 28, he wants you to make disciples of the nations. He always wants you to trust him. The one who comes to God, Hebrews eleven six, must believe that he is. And he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Not a punisher, not a, not a, not a torturer, a rewarder of those who seek him. It's a faith claim. Now, the context of the be filled by the spirit passage is to know something, to understand something. And it's, it's knowing God. Now listen to the, the, the description. Do not be drunk with wine for that is dissipation or waste, but rather be filled by the spirit. Now, is that control? When you drink to excess, and, and what he's describing here is an excessive drinking, not a wedding at Cana miracle where he provided some really good wine, but, but the description here is of somebody that is drinking to excess, drinking to the point of an undue influence. Our, our jurisprudence is correct to call it influence, I think. It's influence. Let me prove it to you. Someone commits a crime under the influence. They're not absolved of the crime and say, well, the wine controlled me. They're guilty of their choice. And we say the mitigating circumstances under the influence, that's part of the crime. That's how we are. And we're right to say it. We're right to do it that way. And no, the person that murders someone with his car accidentally, the, the manslaughterer who, who, who is guilty of doing this because of irresponsibility with wine, they're guilty of something that's different from someone that premeditatedly said, sought out to go kill the person, but they've still had the same outcome. They've killed them. And there's a consequence in, in God's law, the, the way he set up Israel. And so what I'm saying is you wouldn't take the filling of the spirit in comparison to drunk with wine as control. You take it as influence. You take it as influence that he's working your conscience, that he's, he's, he's superintending the inner faculties of your heart. But 
you've got to make your choices. And I think sometimes we get a uh, little Jesus takes the wheel, take the wheel about this. We get a little, a little passive where we're supposed to be active in choosing to do what he's told us. But nevertheless, I want to point out that the command is an, it is an imperative here. It's in, you know, I put it in red, be filled by the spirit, present, passive imperative. You don't do it, but you're responsible for it to happen. The spirit does it, but you make sure you're not stopping it. Be filled by the spirit. And what's the consequence? How we talk to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How we talk to God, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That would be the Lord Jesus. In Paul's writing, almost always, Lord by itself is a reference to the second person of the Trinity. Always giving thanks. When? Always. For what? All things. To whom? The Father, God the Father, in whose name? In the name of the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. And being subject one to another in the fear of Christ. Being subject one to another. There you go. Christian feminism, mutual submission. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that men and women are mutually submissive to one another. It means that you submit in the proper way that you should given your situation. Jesus Christ does this when he puts on a towel and demonstrates to the disciples that he who would lead must be servant of all. He's not under their authority, but he is submitting himself. You understand? Hopefully, hupotasso to put oneself under. And then immediately, wives to your own husband's as to the Lord, we're going to do the marriage passage. We're going to talk about raising kids. We're going to talk about slaves and masters or today management and labor employers, employees. Yeah. Slaves. And when, when Paul told the church in Ephesus, the Christians in, in Asia minor, the slaves needed to live their lives this way before their masters for God's sake. And the masters need to do this toward the slaves that today has great application to us. And it isn't critical race theory at all. The application for us is that you have employers and employees. That's how it is. And there's a, there's an authority structure there. So deal with it in the power of the Holy spirit. What I'm saying is every relationship and household, whether it's marriage, children, or slaves and masters, every key and difficult relationship in life is to be characterized by the filling of the Holy spirit of God. That's Eusebiah. That's the godliness or the good worship. That's living your life in every way. As worship. Can, can you worship God by singing his praises? You better. We're commanded to sing God's praises. And it's supposed to be the natural effect of the filling ministry of the spirit with the word of Christ. Yes, you can worship God and you must worship God in song. And get ready because you're going to be doing it forever. Can you worship God and how you answer your boss? When she says something unfair and, pers and persecutes you and docks your pay for something you didn't do and she's being petty and stupid and you have only done righteousness in this case. I mean, I'm not always perfect but in this case. I'm kind of on it and I'm being persecuted because of righteous choices that I've made. Can you worship God and how you respond to that circumstance and trust yourself to God who judges righteously? Yeah, that's worship. That's use of Bible. That's the word of Christ richly dwelling within me so that my inside is characterized by Christ so that what I do on the outside is representing him. Yeah, I'm a good servant. That's the philosophy of ministry. There's no other way. It is always the preaching. It's always the teaching of the word. What I can do is tell you, 
What you can do for one another is encourage one another. What you and I, what we have to do, we have to go make our choices for God's sake on our own. We all have to make our own choices. Isn't that amazing? We talk about unity and diversity, oneness and manyness and all that. We all have different hurdles. We're all in our own little, little, little obstacle course. God set up for us to train us up and strengthen us. It's always going to be the same word, the same character of Christ, the same power of the spirit in the many different ways that God is working in your life. So train yourself for the desired result of this use of good worship, godliness. My keyboard still doesn't work. In verse eight, for bodily training for a little is beneficial. What this means is it benefits a little, but this is the interlinear translation. Bodily training, bodily training, gumnaya, uh, gumnasia here, which is again, where we get the word gym, gymnasium, G-Y-M-N-A-S. Gym, this is the word training, bodily training, the, the training of the soma, 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 the body is, is beneficial for a little, but so used to clicking good worship use for all things is beneficial. So living your life in worship to God is, is, is an overarching thing for everything. Being able to do the number of pushups that you should be able to do, or take the 10,000 steps a day that you probably need to be taking. If you're me, um, <laughs> the things that we need to do to maximize the effectiveness of the physical plant are beneficial really temporally. And it is helpful. And Paul, this is your go to the gym verse, go work out benefits a little, but live your life in the gymnasium or in the, in the training of God for good worship. That's good for everything. And what, why? Because it's temporal versus eternal, because it holds a promise of life for now for that, which is coming. See the, the life lived in worship to God, by the way, can you do your steps and your pushups and whatever else you need to be doing, uh, in worship to God? I say, don't do it otherwise. So do it. Yeah. Y'all need to be doing the things you need to do, but it's all worship to God. Isn't that a different way of thinking? Like, how do you, okay. Okay. So, so, okay. Rosalind chest back day where you're doing supersets with chest and back. You're going to do this as worship to God. Oh, please. This is corny. It's not chest and back day is a really important day. It's an important day to not to mess up because you, you really hurt your shoulders and then you're, you're out of it for a long time. But, but it is a big day to, if you're going to do the superset day, the chest back day. If you're going to do push muscles and pull muscles so that you can keep up with your giant children that need to be beaten down, um, <laughs> if you're like me, um, then, then you have to look at the whole picture of what you're doing. God, this is time you've given me. And I, I'm not saying be OCD about your spiritual life and your prayer. I'm just saying it's time you've given me and it's a body you've given me and it's a stewardship the time and the body are stewardships that you've entrusted to me for service to you. And I'll be better at that service if I do a successful chest back day than if I don't. And so because wisdom dictates that I strengthen my muscles and my bones, as I, especially as I get older, rather than just kind of slough it off, that, it, that it's better for my lifestyle. It's better for everything else that I need to do in this body. I need to do it and I want to do it for you. I don't want to do it in your power. I want to do it for your pleasure. Like I want to do everything else. And here's the thing, beloved, if you can, if you can start thinking this way about the things you're doing with your life, it's funny what things will fall off when you can't fit into that box. I could put chest back day in there. 
day, day at Six Flags with the boys, totally, I can totally do a day at Six Flags with my sons as worship to God. Because they need to know their dad loves them and that their God loves them. One of the most awesome devotional moments I had with my third son this, this whole last year. So he was looking at that triple loop roller coaster. He was like, oh, I don't think I can do it. I was like, you can totally do this, but I'm scared. And I said, but what time I'm afraid we will trust. I'll trust in thee. That's what David said. We're supposed to trust in God when we're afraid. And I wasn't even thinking about the impact of these words. You never know what's going to stick. That kid became the roller coaster man for the next four hours. I just real quick. I mean, I've talked a lot. I'll tell you a story where it's, it's black Friday. Don't tell anybody turn off the recording. Black Friday is the day to go to Six Flags because everybody else is doing something stupid. <laughs> and as the sun goes down and there's like four more hours of the park being open, they're gone. And if there are people that are sitting on the ride, they'll run it. We rode the best roller coaster at Six Flags over Texas on Black Friday at least 27 times. <laughs> And the way we were able to do that is when, it, when the minute or two of the ride was over, you, it brings you into the station, we would just stay in our seat. There was nobody waiting. They were all at Black Friday. And so, and it was a beautiful day. It was pretty, it's hard to do Black Friday in, in Massachusetts, but it was cold. But, um, but we, rode the, we rode the dog out of, I mean, the wheel bearings, the ball bearings were falling out of the roller coaster. We rode so much. Um, uh, and it was just a blast, but that I'll never forget in my whole life. I pray I'll never forget what my third son said when, um, I said, you want to go do that thing that I was, I'm, I'm getting older and I'm nervous about, uh, heights now. I don't know why it's just like, I can go down, but going up just traumatizes me. I'm like, you want to go do that thing? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, what happened to being afraid of the, the giant thing? He goes, dad, you told me trust in God. I'm trusting the Lord. It's an eight-year-old application. He's, it, was a, it was a training moment for him. We'll always have that kind of thing we talk about. I remember when you weren't scared anymore because you're going to trust the Lord about the roller coaster. It's training. It's a, I know it's kind of a silly thing, but hey, we're silly when we're little. But he didn't think that was silly. He was, he was practicing his faith and, and having a ball. And I was like, hey, tone it down. Isaiah, you want to go with him? I can't ride that one. <laughs> It's the one that shoots straight up and then bounces back down. I just, I, it'd been a long day. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't all about that, that day. But, but bodily training is good for a little bit. Yusuvaya, worship as your life and your spiritual life, walking by the spirit, abiding in Christ, all these things that are describing the Christian spiritual life, or as Paul says in first Corinthians, he that is spiritual. This is what we're talking about. This is the spiritual life. That is our birthright. And so this Life of worship is really the facet that is what it's for. You're living your life in worship toward God. It holds a promise of life, enjoying the life of, that God gave you, both now and for that which is coming. He's going to underline his thought and say, faithful is the word and worthy of all acceptance. He says this often when he's underscoring what he says. A few times in his letters, he'll say, this is a trustworthy thing. You know, write that down, Timothy, is kind of what this is. That... that Worship, uh, the life of worship, Yusabaya, in the power of the Spirit of God abiding in Christ, this life of worship or the Christian spiritual life as we've called it, this is everything. It's all the time. It's, your, it's all the time because it's eternal and it has eternal impact, inter eternal consequences. So we 
close on verse 10 with a God-centered philosophy of ministry. For unto this also we labor and are not strive. We're reviled, we're reproached, we're attacked. We're hated and spit upon. We're the scum of the earth, he tells the Corinthians. For this we labor, kopiao, and we are reviled. Onedizo, or onedizomai. We're reviled. Was Jesus reviled and reproached? Read the gospel accounts of the cross. Read all four gospels when it gets to the cross. Much of what they're writing is not about nails going through hands and feet. It, they did. But most of the ink spilled is the crowd's reviling of our Savior. Read 1 Peter chapter 2, what you do when you receive that kind of attack. We labor and reviled because we fixed our hope upon the living God. I can take it because I've fixed my hope on the living God. Back to Six Flags. Little kids hear that there's a fun thing coming and that becomes their hope. Ever been disappointed as a little kid? Remember that? Remember when we're going to Six Flags but then it rains? Disappointment. Our hope was fixed on that promise of doing that fun thing and now it's a downer. We all have disappointments in life and interestingly, they get worse. To a kid, that's like the end of life because they can't see past the next two hours. To a little kid, like, rained out? Are you kidding me? And, ah, you know, to us, the, the disappointments get bigger and, and worse where there's real stuff and you're stuck with it forever for life. This is a cautionary moment. They fixed their hope. We fixed our hope on the living God. Hope means that hope is, is faith in what God has said, that he'll do it where it becomes an expectation. You probably heard me say that El peace is always when we're talking about our hope as Christians an expectation. It's never an uncertainty. It's always an expectation of what God said he would do. So it's my faith that now is in my, in my thinking like an expectation. And so he's, he, Paul is living with this eternal perspective all through the passage unto us, unto this, this being pleasing to God and this good, good worship of life. We labor and are reviled because we fix our hope upon the living God who is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. This is not the moment at present city Bible church where we change our doctrinal statement, and become universalists. What a universalist is means that this verse says that everybody eventually goes to heaven because, because love wins as Rob Bell mistakenly said, it does win, but not like he thinks the, especially is a way of saying specifically. In other words, Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, but you need to trust him. And that's the way the atonement works. The provision is for salvation for any and all, but the salvation is secured in redemption for those who believe. And that's first John chapter two. And that's echoed here. He's the savior of all men. Beloved, do not tell someone Jesus might've died for your sins. Tell them Jesus died for your sins. The gospel is not a potential. It is the work of Christ for you. Now I've had Calvinists tell me, well, you're, you're preaching potentiality because if, if Jesus didn't pay for your sin, no, he did pay for my sins. Well, then you're saying that everyone gets saved. No, only those who believe receive the redemption that has been provided for at the cross. Jesus did his work. It's sufficient. It is applied to you when you first trust in Christ as your savior. And so he's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. That's what that means. And, and John, see, 
Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so is John. And that's why John says he's the propitiation or the satisfaction for all, for the sins of all, especially, or not especially, the satisfaction. I can't read it. I can read it. I can't re- remember it. I got it, Jerry. He's, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for those ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's 1 John 2, 2. The doctrine that I teach has been called unlimited atonement. It means that the provision for salvation for the world, for the sins of the world was settled at the cross. And that's what everyone has to look back to. You have to look to what Jesus did at the cross. There's nothing, I'm, I'm really struggling with my sin. Yeah, I'm glad you know that. There's nothing you can do about it. You're in a pit you can't climb out of. You need to turn your attention to Jesus Christ and what he did for you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And this idea, well, you're just saying he he secured a potentiality. No, he secured a real forgiveness for anyone who trusts in him. And John 3, 18 kind of clenches it for me. The, The basis of judgment is they haven't believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Well, we did get to end on the gospel. I'm mindful that not everybody here or in the hear my voice, we're going to record it, we're going to put it on the internet, whatever. Not everybody knows Christ as Savior. Maybe that's you. I wish I knew. I do. I wish I knew that if you didn't, if you don't really understand or didn't trust in Christ, I wish I did because maybe I could personally engage you and say, Hey, look, I'm available for any, any time, but I'll do that now. Anytime you want to talk about anything, I'm available. That's part of what I consider to be my responsibility, but I don't know your status. I don't know where you are with God. God does. And that's part of the deal. I don't know because the relationship isn't with me, me and you, that's a secondary matter. You and each other, that's secondary to you and God. And that's, that's really what I want you to understand. The most important thing in the world is that you would know God through his son. You know whether you do or whether you do not believe Jesus died for your sins, provide eternal life for you at the cross. You know whether you trust in him or not. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. We don't walk aisles. We don't raise hands. Sometimes I wish we did because I've seen people uh, connect with their pastor and pray in in a good way. But I I fear that the idea will be misunderstood. So we don't we don't do anything that might look like you're getting saved by this action. What we do. Beloved ones made in God's image, a broken image through personal sin, through the sin of Adam. but God's image, nevertheless, what we do is trust And Jesus Christ is our savior. Yes, you are a sinner. And yes, your sin separates you from God. And yes, so am I. But the gospel is that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross and you need to trust in him. And he's not a dead savior. He died for you, but he rose from the dead. He's enthroned at the right hand of God in glory, offering you eternal life right now. Will you trust him? Father, we thank you for this eternal life for our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cleansing, the washing of water with the word as we think about what this life is really about. Father, we've, we've talked about the good worship, the life of worship as we walk by the spirit and, and abiding in your son. We want to be part of that. 
We want to live that. We want in, in our good worship, we want to be part of your work. Father, we pray for the list, those that we know that don't know Christ, our bosses, our employees, our cousins, our uncles, our aunts, our parents, our children, our loved ones. Father, the people in our lives represented in this moment with all these people here, we have people in, in mind, Father, that don't know you. Father, make the issue clear. Let your spirit bring his conviction, all that you've told us in the word that has to happen. We pray for their souls. We pray for their eternal life. We pray for them to have what we have, a relationship with you. And we know that it's, it's your work from beginning to end that does it. So we just pray for them, Father. And we know that this is your son's intention. Finally, as the Lord of the harvest, Father, send workers, let us be part of your work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.